0: Law reflects, but in no sense determines, the moral worth of a society. The better the society, the less law there will be. In heaven there will be no law, and the lion will lie down with the lamb. The worse the society, the more law there will be. In hell there will be nothing but law, and due process will be meticulously observed.
1: Monica Perez and we are here today with our resident deep dives constitutional scholar I will say that he has earned that but not even via credential but by your own witness it's our friend Eric Buchanan hi Eric how are you
0: good hi Monica how are you
1: Great, thank you. I do like to start with uh, telling people what you do as a practice because as we've gotten to know you, you're a straight shooter and if, if somebody has a problem that you can help with, you would be the guy I would want on their side. So tell them who you are, what you do, and how to use your services.
0: Yeah, so I appreciate that. So my day job is my law firm is Eric Buchanan Associates and we are a national law firm that helps people who have disability insurance or long-term disability issues if you've been denied by an insurance company if they're giving you the runaround if they're supposed to pay you money if you can't work anymore or your work has been limited because you have a health issue we help with those claims so long-term disability policies that are subject to ERISA or private disability insurance we work with local attorneys all over the united states so we can help somebody in any state we also do long-term care health insurance and life insurance cases so any of those kind of problems we can be found on the world wide web at BuchananDisability.com and our phone number is 877-634-2506.
1: That's great. I'm sure people who are in that position need some help and would benefit from it. So that's great. I encourage people to reach out to you even just for um, referrals or whatever. And in the meanwhile, people so enjoy hearing you break down some of the most important eras and cases in Supreme Court history and how they have changed the Constitution. And as I when I was tweeting about today's show, it's like, wow, Supreme Court is the ones who they say that they're the guardians of the Constitution. They're the ones who are guarding the store and and they are the ones who destroy it it seems like and i think they often do it under cover of um i remember when i was in law school and i would say that's unconstitutional and they would uh, the teachers would respond well it's a policy decision it's just a policy decision and of course it is not up to the supreme courts who make policy but they do and i think what we're going to talk about today is kind of the golden age of policymaking by the court is that does that sound like a fair introduction
0: that's a great way to, to to describe it. I think one way I would p- also put it is, there are some justices that along the way have even said the quiet part out loud that we test whether something is constitutional by looking at whether or not it's good policy versus the text in the Constitution. And clearly, if you believe that the Constitution is the rule book we're supposed to live by as a nation, that you don't weigh the po- if it's a good idea or if it's a horrible idea. It doesn't. It shouldn't matter either way. The first question you should ask is, is it permitted under the Constitution? And the era we're gonna talk about today is is when there was a pretty big shift in the, if you're in favor of the Constitution, the wrong direction.
1: Okay, so I would like to say that when it comes to the Constitution and reading it on a case-by-case basis, my father taught me from when I was really young. He said, you have to have your value system in order because you're gonna have to make decisions along the way And you're not going to be able to weigh every nuance, every implication for yourself and society and God on every single decision if you don't understand the principles of right and wrong. And I feel like with the Constitution, with the system, with the system as it was laid down by the founders, people will say, oh, well, they didn't have this technology or this kind of community. But actually, you could argue that they did, that there were, that it was a melting pot from the beginning, that there were different cultures from the beginning, that they had scary technology like guns and stuff, and that they had a coherent body of principles that like the common law has been tested over time. And if you're gonna go in and parachute in there and mess around with one or another in violation of the fundamental principles, you could destabilize the entire system. And that's why those one-off decisions you know, on an isolated case that ripples across many cases that are often misapplied there. Even the facts are slightly different. I feel like it's dangerous. And I, and I think that those jurists who have gotten to that height, they know darn well that they're making, you know, really uh, just um, dramatic changes in, in the system, even though they say that it's just a marginal or justice or yada, yada.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That they know that they're making a big change. And, and, one of the arguments everybody talks about do we have a living constitution? Do we actually look at the text and try to interpret it literally? Should we look at the text in the context of, of what it meant in the seventeen eighties when the founding fathers were talking about all this stuff? One of the simple arguments I like to I like to use is if you're gonna do anything other than read the text in the context that it was written, what is your principled reason for interpreting it that way that simply does 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 it support your argument? If it does, based on your interpretations, then your interpretations don't have principles. What is your principled rule that you want us to follow when you're interpreting the Constitution? If your rule doesn't have a principle, if it simply is, well, it's a living Constitution, therefore it means what I want it to mean, then it's not really a rule book. You can always change the rules.
1: And it's unpredictable. And that's when you have accusations of hypocrisy going back and forth. And hypocrisy is just, uh, I mean, it's impossible if you have no values. But even if you have, you know what I mean? It's like it's a violation of your own values. But it's this idea that it, it makes for a fundamentally unstable system because you can't predict things. You can't apply these basic rules. And that is what I love about having a long history of consistent Case law, which if people will say like, this is common sense, this is practical, I think is something that's going to come up in this conversation. But what's really practical is principles that have been vetted over the millennia. And uh, I mean, some of these are ancient. And I feel like they they just throw that out and pay a lot of lip service to stuff that doesn't adhere to any system at all, except for what's expedient for their goals. And I think I would always take it a step further and say their goals are to rule and dominate the world and us not to have rights at the end. But even these one-off guys who maybe have like call themselves liberals or whatever, maybe don't understand like the bigger implications about there are forces at work that would like to have more power at the top. And they encourage these kind of ideals that don't, hold water when applied to the human society that they're taking over, influencing.
0: Yeah, I, I agree 100%. I think the way that I might also describe that is the Founding Fathers, when they were writing the Constitution, they had just rebelled against the largest empire that existed on the planet, that the British system did have a basis in justice. They had you know, some basic rights. They did have a, a constitution. But they also had a large, growing administrative state. They had a lot of taxation problems. And the parliament had become a central place of authority that if you had the majority of the parliament, you could kind of do whatever you wanted to, even to places that didn't have representation in parliament, like the colonies. And so the founding fathers, a lot of what they took into account was human nature. The human nature is always going to be that there's someone out there that wants to consolidate power. There's someone out there that wants to tell people how to live their lives. They want to get rich. They want to keep the power to themselves. And the best way to maintain a society where somebody doesn't get all the power, he doesn't get to become king or doesn't get to become this this parliament that rules everybody, is you've got to divide up the power and then you've also got to have some rules that always stay into effect where are really, really hard to change. They understood human nature. That's my argument about why I'm such a big fan of the founding fathers. They had figured that out and they set these rules down.
1: And they protected the minority. That's what I like about our system is that you, you have all these protections in place in the legislature that protects the minority. So I absolutely hate it, whether it's Trump or Obama or anybody else who wants a straight up and down vote on everything. It's like, no, that that is also destabilizing. You want you want resistance to radical change, I think. I guess that makes me a conservative. Yikes. <laughs> not really. Not not an all that that implies. I do like to conserve what's good, that's for sure.
0: Yeah, if you have a set of rules that you can change a little or change over time, that's fine. We have a way to amend the Constitution. And the Supreme Court, I think, does have some leeway to interpret stuff that's not clear in the Constitution. But if you're just going to interpret stuff to, based on whatever I think is the best policy for my side or what is the best policy for today, that's not what the founding fathers intended, and it doesn't provide us a solid rule book as a society to go forward with.
1: So, when did this start? Where are we starting with FDR?
0: Yeah, so when they uh, the
1: court or uh, threatened to, or had that all? How does that? Yeah, that's started? that's that's
0: the, the, that's the, almost the starting point. I want to talk. I want to start with what's called the switch in time that saved nine. Yeah, which was when uh, FDR threatened to back the court. But before we go into that, can I bring back one more case that we kind of glossed over? So. In our previous podcast, we talked about the populist era. We talked about the populist amendments. We talked about the early progressive era, Teddy Roosevelt versus Woodrow Wilson, and, and what all was going on in the very early 1900s and some of the changes that were going on. Uh, the, for example, the supreme the, uh, the 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 Senate became directly elected by the people of each state as opposed to the. Boo. Yeah, and the, the income tax was added. Prohibition Boo. was added. What a great idea that, that was! <laughs> all those were in that. That populist slash Boo. progressive era in the early 1900s. One other case that came out at the end of that populist uh, and progressive era in 1923 is important for us to have this in our history of Supreme Court cases. And then as we go, and then we'll talk about what happened under FDR. So, one other case I want to make sure everybody's heard of is the Commonwealth of Massachusetts versus Mellon. And Massachusetts versus Mellon was decided in 1923, and that was when the Supreme Court was still pretty conservative. It was struggling with these new big government ideas. America was growing rapidly. And the issue in that case was actually a Massachusetts state Supreme Court case that got to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the question was, Massachusetts wanted to pass a law that would give money to mothers and young children. It was basically one of the first welfare plans. It was the 1921 Maternity Act. And the way this ends up becoming an important Supreme Court case is a one of the women in uh, Massachusetts, a woman named Frothingham who had her own business and had her own income. She sued saying we shouldn't be supporting these young mothers and their kids. That's not what the state should be doing. And the reason I have a right to complain about this is I'm a taxpayer and I don't want my taxes to go up. And that case goes all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court establishes an important principle that kind of is important for us to understand in the 20th and 21st century that there's no taxpayer standing, that's where that first was established.
1: There's no anything standing. That's why you can't even <laughs> violate, like you can't even fight election outcomes as a as a person. As like but, you you lose standing. That's why in Georgia, I was covering that Georgia case so closely. They finally uh, said that Garland had no. St- he was he was trying to get a recount because the audit wasn't really the audit that they said it was, and. Uh, after many, many months and all other avenues of recourse were expired, they told him he didn't have standing. And I was like, I was surprised they didn't tell him that in the beginning, because what what is your standing? Like, you're, you're hurt by a miscount of vote. Like, yes, you are. But I remember this case. Standing is, uh, we don't have it.
0: Yeah. So for people who who are not lawyers, didn't go to law school like you and I did, just really quickly, the story of standing is in the Constitution. Courts are given jurisdiction over cases and controversies. So for a federal court to hear a case, there actually has to be somebody versus somebody that have their own individual harm. I was hit by a drunk driver, so I'm going to sue the drunk driver. I have had a, a rule from the government that says my piece of property can't be used what I want it for, what I use it for. I had individualized harm. And what the Supreme Court has developed over time, and in this Mellon case, Massachusetts versus Mellon case is like the key one in the twentieth century, it says, for you to have a case, you can't just come in and said and say the government's doing something unconstitutional generally. It can't be that it's a rule that hurts everybody. It can't hurt me because I'm a taxpayer. It can't hurt me because I'm a voter. It has to hurt me because I actually had skin in the game that was more individual for me to have a case. And if I don't have that case in controversy that applies to me, I don't have standing, which really boils down to, and we'll see examples of this today, that the Constitution can have a clear black and white rule, something can or cannot be done, and Congress violates that rule, but if you're not the person who is individually harmed, you can't as a U.S. citizen or as a taxpayer or as a voter complain that that was unconstitutional because you don't have standing. Only someone who's actually harmed specifically could have standing. We see it today with the student loan forgiveness bill that the Supreme Courts, they're trying to decide whether Joe Biden relie- relieving all those student loans uh, is constitutional or not. Did he have the authority to do that before they really can answer the question, though? The first challenge is, are the people complaining about it? Do they actually have standing where they individually hurt? And-
1: well, what, what if you're not, if you don't, then how do you what is our recourse? Nothing. Is there no way? I would argue he did not have the right to. The federal government doesn't have the right to give those loans in the first place, so it really can't be addressed in the thingy, but whatever. So what do you do? What do you do? We can do nothing, right? right? Vote, right. The, vote the bastards out of office. <laughs> That's the problem with the standing
0: doctrine is, is the Constitution can say definitely this is a violation. You can't do this. But if you don't have standing, you can't complain. The courts won't address it, so the only choice is you have to vote them out. And it means the voters have to decide we're going to not vote for people because they violate the Constitution. Hey, if you're one of the people getting the giveaways, though, and you don't care that oh, much yeah. about the Constitution, you're going to vote for more Joe Biden giveaways.
1: Yeah. And the next guy you elect is he's got he's not going to give that up either.
0: That's that's the problem. If, if voting is the only solution, what's the point of having a Constitution and a Supreme Court? Totally. But
1: that, yeah. Yes.
0: But that Mellon case sort of gets that story. So I want to talk about that because that was early 1920s. Now let's skip ahead about fifteen more years, and we're in our time machines going back to nineteen thirty-seven. Nineteen thirty-seven, we talked about this was the era of, of Will Rogers, the comedian. It was early radio. It was the deep into the Great Depression, and one of the big problems that happened was FDR had won the White House in nineteen thirty-two, and he ended up with a large majority in uh, in the Senate and in the House, and so they started passing laws to help during the Great Depression. We can talk about whether things like the Civilian Conservation Corps or any of the other big the, the relief packages that were put in place, do those really help? Some of the monetary policy issues that were put in place, did that make things better or worse? But the, what ended up happening was the conservative Supreme Court, with a lot of justices that had been appointed by Warren Harding, Calvin Coolidge, and Herbert Hoover in the last few years, they didn't like FDR's plans, and they especially said these are unconstitutional. You can't spend government money based on the well, on the spending clause, on spending for the general welfare. You can't create these giant plans based on that. You can't create these other gi- giant government programs under the Commerce Clause, for example. So the, the, the U.S. Constitution only says there's a specific list of things that Congress can do, and if it's not on that list, they don't have the power to do it. And the Supreme Court was continuing to uphold those rules going into the, the end of FDR's first term. Well, toward the, as soon as he got reelected in large numbers, one of the first things he proposed was something called the Judicial Procedures Reform Bill. And we talked about this in our previous episode, but I'll go over it again for people who didn't get a chance to listen. This is basically the court pl- packing plan. And what he said was that we could add up to six new justices, so take it from nine to 15, giving FDR the power to appoint six new ones for every justice who was already over 70 years old, which was a lot of them at the time. And any justice that turned 70 and didn't retire, then the FDR would have had the power to add another Supreme Court justice. So he could have taken it from six to 15. That's kind of weird. Like, why would
1: you do that? Like, if they're old, you get to add one? Like, that doesn't even logically follow.
0: Well, that was his plan in order to well, these, these old people, well, actually, the way he sold it to the American people in his fireside chats was, if you're over 70, you're pretty old, don't you need a little help? Maybe you're not quite. (laughs) Yeah, that's the way he sold it. And maybe Ah, they don't quite understand what the American people are suffering. They don't know what's going on out here in the Great Depression. Oh, my gosh. You folks sitting around your fireplace listening to your radio listening to me talk, we understand how bad it is in America. And these old Republican Supreme Court justices, they just don't understand. So they need some more help. Mm -hmm. That was the way he sold it because they weren't capable and they just didn't understand what was going on. So he started to sell this plan of, of adding Supreme Court justices, and that would have essentially given the Supreme Court over to a lot of FDR appointees. And so as that was being considered, uh, one of the Supreme Court cases, we have talked about this one before too, but I'll just mention it again, West Coast, Ho- Ho- West Coast Hotel versus Parish. Previously, the Supreme Court had said that minimum wage laws were unconstitutional because they impaired the right of contract that you should have the ability yeah. to work for whatever wages you want right. to and your employer should be able to set whatever wage they want to. And that's what free people in a free country can decide to do. Washington state had said, but wait a minute, women and children need a lot of protection. So it was kind of a sexist law in the first place. How's a woman going to know what a good, what a good wage yeah. to work for yeah. That was kind of the, the, you know, the way Washington state looked at it in the 1930s. That case gets the Supreme court and justice Roberts, uh, who had been voting with the conservatives upholding the Constitution, switched his vote, voted that the Washington state law was constitutional, which effectively over ended what was called the Lochner era, the old Lochner cases said constitutional rights are protected, include that those rights include the right to contract. And now it's OK for the state to be paternalistic and go in and tell people you can't work for less than what, you, what a minimum wage is. You have to get a minimum wage. And that, that was an acceptable power by the United States. And the important thing that happened was by Justice Roberts switching over, it opened the doorway for FDR's uh, new, uh, new policies that he wanted to put in place and new programs during the Depression were going to be fine.
1: Wondering if you're keeping up with deep dives, buddy dives, and dive master interviews? You might not be. To be sure you're getting all my content as soon as it's available, as well as a commercial free option please subscribe to deep dives with Monica Perez on your favorite podcasting platform. Did you ever read, uh, I believe I even checked this out. There was a, something in the Mises. Um, I don't know if it was Rothbard or who it was, but it, uh, a, an expose of the original discussion for a federal minimum wage, which was uh, purely race-based that, that, I guess blacks were coming up from the south to the north, and competing with people ca- and um, competing down the wages. And they said, if we put a floor on the wages, the less skilled labor will not work at all, and the more skilled labor will get those jobs because they they are if they're, you can only hire one person instead of one and a half people for the same price, you're going to take the guy who's been you know doing the job longer. And uh, it just was entirely race based, <laughs> which I thought was interesting.
0: I've heard that before. And I've also, you know, Thomas Sowell is the- Of
1: course.
0: The, yeah. the he, he has a great explanation on the minimum wage that basically says what you're doing by putting a minimum wage in place is you're telling young people who don't have any skills that they don't have an opportunity to learn those skills right. by taking the low paying jobs. So the young, in his example, a young black man who was in high school saying- I will work for a dollar an yeah. hour if you'll give I'll me the opportunity to learn how to work in your store, to dip ice cream or work in a convenience store or whatever. And then when I have enough skills, maybe somebody will pay me more. Well, you do, it's harder to get entry-level jobs if the minimum wage is too high. I think that's I a wanted, pretty decent argument.
1: I wanted to do that in law school. I was—I went to Stanford. My father was a truck driver. I dropped out of high school. like I was just not in a position to compete with these people for jobs. And I asked around if I could work, and it was it's in Stanford. So it's Silicon Valley. And they're like, no, we don't, we won't let somebody work for nothing. And I was like, but please. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. no. and I just, and, and it sucked Cause I knew people who, uh, you know, really learned a lot in those summer jobs. And I just, I would have done anything after school, anything. And I was so frustrated, but whatever.
0: All yeah. right. So the, Kind of the important point in American history, the big inflection here is FDR threatens to pack the court. The Supreme Court has a switch of one judge. The co- local comedian, the guy named Cal Tenney, quotes the gray line, this is the switch in time that saved nine, mm-hmm. and that there's some historical arguments that maybe Justice Roberts was going to vote that way anyway, but it certainly gave everybody the impression that, that the Supreme Court was subject to political pressure. And that it was time for the Supreme Court to recognize how dire the times were during the Great Depression. If it's an emergency, we need to have special powers, we need to quit following the old rules, and it's time for the Supreme Court to respond to what the will of the people is and what the politics are of the age. That certainly became the narrative of the time, and a lot of Supreme Court justices arguably felt that pressure.
1: Let me ask you a question about Sure. Like what makes sense. So the real problem here isn't that welfare was disallowed. It's that federal welfare was disallowed, right? Or is it like on the state level? Because if if you're saying that that the hard times and the depression was convincing them that there needs to be action, all you're really saying is the state's you have to transfer money from one state. I guess we're mixing apples and oranges because this was a Washington state law, right? This was just a state law. But I All feel the, like the bigger problem was the government spending, the government overreach in that way. And uh, it's really just saying we are going to pool the tax money from the whole country and dole that out instead of letting the states do it one by one. And that was like the only distinction in my mind to have federal welfare, which is a horrible violation of the Constitution, in my opinion.
0: That is a great segue to the next cases. Okay, cases good. we're going to talk about. Great. So, these two cases came, sorry. So what ends up happening uh, is in West Coast versus Parrish, that there's this switch in time to save nine. It's clear that the Supreme Court is now more than uh, willing to under, you know, change their definitions under the Constitution, read it differently, and start approving some of FDR's programs. And the next big cases that came up later in nineteen thirty seven are two cases called Helverine versus Davis. And Steward Machines Company versus Davis. Those cases dealt with the constitutionality of exactly what you were talking about, nationwide uh, welfare programs and state welfare programs mandated by the federal government. Specifically, Helvering, excuse me, versus Davis said was the case where the Supreme Court, well, Congress passed a law saying states have to put in place unemployment insurance. That was a federal law that mandated to the states. That you have to tax money from employers, put it in a fund, and when people become unemployed, then the state has those funds available to pay people's unemployment insurance to pay them an unemployment benefit.
1: That's that insane. Was,
0: that was mandated by the by the uh, U.S. Supreme Court. That's I mean, crazy. Sorry, mandated by Congress, right? And then okay, came yeah. Came before the Supreme <laughs> yes. Court, and the Supreme. And they allowed. Her. Right, and so what the Supreme Court said the question that they were facing in that case. Yeah, uh, this is Of those two cases, this is the one that is Stewart Machine Company versus Davis, which came out of an Alabama company saying, I shouldn't have my state take away this money, this extra tax that I have to pay. It applied to all employers in any state that had more than eight, empo- eight or more employees and that the state had to collect the money as an extra tax. So it was telling the state of Alabama or the state of Missouri or the state of Kentucky or New York or whatever, you have to do this. And this one employer sued and they they argued both saying, well, I shouldn't have to pay the tax. Plus, it violates the Tenth Amendment that you're telling states what to do. And it's basically creating this giant spending system where everybody, where the money gets redistributed. You pay taxes while you're working and then somebody else becomes unemployed. They get the unemployment benefit. And the Supreme Court used, listen to this reasoning. Uh, That these taxes were collected in the hope or expectation that that some other collateral good would be furthered. And as an an incident, that without more would make the act valid.
1: What? That could just buy anything.
0: This indeed is hardly questioned. That's what the majority opinion wrote. How is this constitutional? Because it's a really, really good reason. Oh, wow. So what what they do in the Supreme Court case is they actually go into the history of that's how bad so un- weak, how bad unemployment is in the 1930s, how bad the Great Depression is that's going on right now, and therefore because this law is going to do some really good things, provide unemployment insurance, we shouldn't question anything else about it. It's a really good policy.
1: Why uh, not just if it's such a why? good thing? Why isn't there private unemployment insurance?
0: That's not what the Supreme Court was asking, right? I'm that, just I mean, that- saying,
1: I'm just saying it's not that it's an unquestionably good idea and it's not unquestionable that good idea. You know what I mean? Like that just that makes me crazy. It's what it it's it is a constant theme that's gotten louder and louder since then and it's just deafening now where it's, it comes out with like common sense gun laws or you know Republicans are evil. Like it's just it, there is this idea that if you say Oh, I, I know it is a good example. It's like a, a pseudo-intellectual BS kind of thing that you would get from, I don't know, I feel like a panel of Atlantic, you know, journalists from the Atlantic that they'll right. sit there and say, like, I mean, I mean, anyone with a conscience would know that this is a good idea. It's like it, they it, there's no explanation. There's nothing. It's just this idea that uh that kind of um bleeding heart blather means it's a good thing. Like common sense gun laws. It's like more people are shot in self-defense than, than in aggression like that. It's, it's a common sense gun laws. Everyone should have a gun (laughs) It's to mandate gun ownership.
0: So what you're, what you're really saying, Monica is that those of us who understand how important it is to take care of people that are starving and unable to feed their children (laughs) is that some old peach of parchment signed by a bunch of old white men should stand in the way of taking (laughs) care of people. Well, Is you that know, really, what you're saying—that's what
1: I'm saying. And I have to say, <laughs> I have to say that, like you, the underlying premise. And there's a book by Renee Wormser, I think, who was the lawyer on the House un American Activities Committee, who was involved in that with Norman Dodd doing research on whether um, tax exempt foundations are un-American, and they proved that they were. Uh, but he ha- also wrote a book. He wrote a book called the myth of the good and bad nations. And he's just like every, all wars are just tons of propaganda on both sides. So like, you're always going to have just the good guy and the bad guy in all wars and wars have reasons. They have causes and there are nuances and stuff. And I feel like that for the politicians or the parties or whatever, it's this myth of good and bad people. It's just this idea that 80 million voters are secretly are just like evil. You know, like both sides will say that about the other side. It's just like, they're just evil. Instead of realizing that there is a point of view and it needs to be vetted in the issue. Like Thomas Sowell is a perfect person for that. Like he will keep going and consider all all of the factors and like the second order ramifications. That's another thing that no one will ever consider second order ramifications. We're, we're totally capable of abstract thought. We're a very complicated society with high intellect, and there's absolutely no reason why we cannot think about knock-on effects, which is what most of these principles have had, have come to, to be timeless because you've had time to vet all that knock on stuff. So these like knee jerk, you know, that's that kind of stuff just pisses me off.
0: Yeah. So you brought up a couple of points, I think are really interesting. The the hypothesis from what's the name of the book, the coddling of the American mind. uh, I think it was Hyatt is his name. One of the one of the arguments is that we've taught young people not to think clearly and not to think critically and that Basically, the world is divided between good people and bad people, and the bad people are the ones that don't agree with us. And if we even listen to their ideas, then we're platforming those ideas. So we have to basically fight that we don't even want to hear those ideas because they're basically bad people. And it, it totally denies the idea that we might need some empathy and some understanding of what the other side's arguments are in order to address those arguments and find some compromise or understand where each other's coming from. You don't do that anymore uh, because his hypothesis we've taught too many young people that hey, if, if you're right, you're good, you're the hero in this story and the people that don't agree with you are all evil.
1: I would say further that the reason it's like that is these plot. I'm reading this book, The Milner Fabian Conspiracy, and it's it's just the reason that they cannot brook actual discourse is that. The arguments are very shallow. There are arguments from the top, shallow arguments from the top that give little talking points to shallow thinkers on the rank and file that just convince them it's good for them. So that if you actually pressed it and had discourse, you would come up with one or two answers. One is, well, I really only want it because it's good for me because I'm the guy on the receiving end, not the giving end. Or there is no depth to the argument because if you peeled it, you would find that it it actually favors monopoly or something like that. Like it actually, it favors um, putting more power and money at the top that would then be easily captured by the people who came up with these ideas in the first place. So the reason you can't have that kind of discourse, this is why I like Catholicism, is that there is no end to, I mean, ad nauseam and sometimes but there is no end to the amount of back and forth. there is no question that hasn't been absolutely beaten to death. <laughs> you know, like there is no chance that you can ask a question that that they're not ready for. You can disagree along the way and they will say, "Yeah, we disagree because it comes down to basic principles and basic opinions about human nature like you were saying, but they'll never shrink from an argument because they know that they that they've they've made those arguments and they've satisfied themselves. And I think that's not possible with some of this stuff because it's seriously not what you see is what you get.
0: Yeah. I, I, with a lot of the it's Jonathan Haidt is the name of the author who wrote the coddling of the American mind. And one of it and part of his premise is that uh, when you, when you look at the world as black and white, I'm good, they're bad. It's one of the ways we shut down the discourse is you're saying, if, if you actually do have the conversation, you delve deep, you're going to learn that your arguments aren't very good. And one of the and so who is it out who wants to have an argument? The people who have a good logical reason to support their arguments and wants to have an argument. If you don't want it, if you can't win the argument, you want to stop the argument. And I think that's one of the things that's happening today. Um, Let me finish up with this case a little bit so we can move on to a couple more. But I think this is also important. This that one line I gave a little a minute ago about how that uh, looking for the common good is the reason to support the law. Uh, the that the good that would be furthered by this law is reason enough to not question its constitutionality. That wasn't a throwaway line. There's more in this case. So one of the the, the other issue they're looking at is because this law would make each state create an unemployment fund and collect unemployment taxes. Is that a violation of federalism and the Tenth Amendment for the federal government to order states to do this? And is that duress that order on the supreme on the states by the by the Senate and by the House to, to in this law, is that duress constitutional. And so the Supreme Court says, to draw the line intelligently between the duress and inducement here, there is need to remind ourselves of the facts as to the problem of unemployment that are now matters of common knowledge. And then they proceed to give more details about the facts of the Great Depression. So the more unemployment there is, the more constitutional this law is, uh, apparently.
1: I have to say, this is... It's a, That kind of reasoning creates this tremendous moral hazard, because then I would say, oh, well, given that government policy has greatly contributed to the Great Depression and the unemployment problem, if there were really after this kind of transformation of our law, which I think there is evidence that they were, then maybe they knew what they were doing with the unintended consequences of these uh, well-meaning policies in the first place.
0: If they didn't do that on purpose in the 1930s, they certainly opened the door to today when you have the famous Democrats saying, you never waste a crisis. That if you yeah,
1: get it a- Emanuel
0: or Hillary Clinton saying that to the EU, that kind of stuff. And the idea is if, if something's really bad, throw out all the rules and let's put in our emergency procedures now that end up becoming the new permanent standards and try to get rid. I mean, this was about the uh, state unemployment tax and unemployment benefits. We still have those today. This was a new program put into effect because of the Great Depression. If anything, those those have expanded. In fact, they expanded significantly under COVID. One last quote from the case. Uh, they were talking about how bad the economy was in the United States and why this law is so important. The, the, the fact developed quickly that the states were unable to give the requ- requisite relief. In other words, the states had not chosen to do this on their own. They didn't have the unemployment money available because they had never had this great idea that the federal government said that they had to do it. The problem had become national in area and dimensions. There was need of help from the nation if the people were not to starve. It is too late today for the argument to be heard with the toler- with tolerance that in a crisis so extreme that the use of the monies of the nation to relieve the unemployed and their dependents is a use for any purpose narrower than the promotion of the general welfare. Translated by Eric... If it's an emergency, it's a crisis, and it's a crisis extreme. We need to reread the Constitution to let this emergency go uh, go into a emergency measure go into effect, and we created the unemployment insurance. And then they issued another case the same day using some of the same rationale. In that case is called Helvering versus Davis. I mentioned the name of it a minute ago, and the question there is whether or not employers have to pay taxes under a brand new law called the Social Security Act. So we have state unemployment laws the federal government created that would got tested in 1937, the same day the Supreme Court also decided whether Congress could create the Social Security Act, requiring employers and employees to pay taxes that would be put supposedly in an account, but not really, and then later when you get, <laughs> when you get retirement age, you get some money back. How is this constitutional? And what did the Supreme Court say? The demands of the elderly that are depend- have become dependent on the government and on their family and on their friends and on their social system is so high that what has happened to these elderly people, and then they gave statistics of how many people over 65 were not supporting themselves with their savings and their earnings. Therefore, we need to have a government system. Therefore, we can read the spending for the general welfare clause to be broad enough to make the Social Security constitutional.
1: And that was the end of the extended family. It actually has been cited by economists, not even like political actors, saying, oh, the big reason why we don't have intergenerational families anymore is that Social Security made it unnecessary for people to take care of their parents or for parents to even be nice to their, you know, hated daughter-in-law or whatever. Like they just didn't have to suck it up anymore. Yeah. Not saying I speak from
0: experience. Well, and and it, <laughs> and, it, and it also got rid of the idea that that the spending power of Congress was supposed to be for the general welfare, something could be used by everybody. If you if Congress is going to build a post road, everybody can use the mail, or everybody's going to drive on that road. And those are specifically mentioned in the Constitution. Uh, but and if you're going to build true. if you're going to build a road, okay. If you're going to build some other the not mi- a road,
1: a post road. a post
0: road. If you're going to if you're going to grow the military, that's okay. But if we're only gonna spend on a certain class of people, we're only gonna give people over 65 some money, that was previously held to be not for the general welfare but for the specific welfare of those people. And what the Supreme Court says in this case is, no, 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 you've read those cases all wrong. When we talk about specifically less than general welfare, we just mean something local like you can't just spend the money just in Cleveland, Ohio. But if you're spending it all over the United States for people over 65, there's too much of an emergency for you to question that. There's too many old people dependent on their family to question that. Therefore, the spending for the general welfare is now permitted to oh, the power to create a national welfare system under the Social Security Act is constitutional because we were in an emergency in the 1930s during the Depression.
1: It's just a wealth transfer, though. You know what I mean? It doesn't create wealth. The problem was the problem. Well, they were the problem, but okay, keep going.
0: Yep. All right. So 19- you're
1: riling me up, Eric. I don't like this stuff.
0: 1937 was an interesting year because there's one more big case that we're going to talk about from that year. And in 1937, the other thing that happened was Hugo Black. Do you remember him? Mm Mm-hmm. So Hugo Black Black was a senator from Alabama. And one big question that came up uh, right after the switch in time to save nine, the Supreme Court starts to uh, approve some of these things like social security and unemployment insurance and minimum wage laws and other. And so it looks like they're start approving FDR's uh, FDR's programs. There's a vacancy on the Supreme Court, and it's the first one that FDR has had, had a chance to appoint somebody. So he's been president for four years, and the Supreme Court has been full of people that were mostly appointed by Harding, Coolidge, and Hoover, the three previous Republicans. And so, and so, (laughs) right. So FDR threatens to pack the court. They finally start ruling it, ruling his way. And he says, well, I'm going to appoint somebody who I really know is going to support me. It's a guy named Hugo Black. Hugo Black's a senator from Alabama. Quick little bit of his background. He first became famous because he, he actually represented an African-American Alabama who had gotten into some economic trouble where he basically, because he'd entered into some deal where he owed a debt, he'd become effectively a, a, an economic slave under Jim Crow in Alabama. And as a black man in the 1920s, he couldn't really get out of that legally. Hugo Black agreed to represent that, represent him and Hugo Black helped him. Uh, And so he became kind of a folk hero amongst the African-American community. Hugo Black immediately turned around and joined the KKK. Ah! So Hugo Black was in the Alabama case. Was he in
1: the FBI? <laughs> <laughs>
0: the
1: KKK was like a third whatever. Well, act, the, like a, one 90- of the first things the FBI did. In
0: was... the 1920s, there were a crap load of people that joined the KKK. If you look at those old pictures yeah. of Washington, D.C., the KKK had giant parades. It was almost like the Lions Club or the you know one of those the social clubs. There were so many people in the KKK.
1: Do you, do you know the KKK was in Gone with the Wind? I think that's how Ashley got shot. Oh, yeah. Because... I think the disenfranchised rebels didn't they were like became vigilantes i think that's how it started and then i think in the 30s it was completely infiltrated in the fbi and became uh you know intentionally like controlled opposition or something but whatever yeah in the, in i'm the, sure there are books about that there are about in, the in, history of the KKK.
0: in the 1920s they were definitely racist they were definitely anti-black but they had become so popular and normalized that, that there were there were a lot of people who remembers the kkk in the 1920s i mean it literally became like the lion's club or the shriners or something
1: What's wrong with people it was horrible
0: <laughs> So, uh, eventually Hugo Black gets elected Senator from Alabama he serves from from 1932 to 19, I'm sorry, 1926 to 1932, gets reelected in 1932. His term is till 1936. And he denies, uh, that he is still involved in the KKK. He kind of gets that over, but he's been elected from people, Alabama, no one's paying attention. FDR appoints him to be the Supreme court justice to replace the first death on the Supreme court since while he's in office so it's FDR's first chance to put someone up and he picks FDR well he FDR uh, Hugo, Black. Hugo Black has two problems problem number 1 is everybody starts bringing out that he was in the KKK and in the US <laughs> like, Senate it's that's they might get you elected from Alabama in the 1920s but it's not going to get you on the Supreme Court yeah. he ends up having the most ranking African American member of the NAACP the executive secretary of the of the NAACP is his friend They've actually been good friends. And he tested the
1: NAACP had a strange origin story, too. I don't know if that's like in the common yeah. uh, knowledge, but I think there was some some controlled opposition there, too.
0: They actually had a lot of white people in their officership early on. That was definitely part of it. So but the but the highest ranking black black African-American member of the NAACP actually Hugo Black had become friends with him. And he comes and testifies Hugo Black is not a racist. And that gets Hugo Black's nomination approved. He gets him through the Senate. But the next problem he's facing is Article 1, Section 6, Clause 2 of the Constitution is the incompatibility and ineligibility clause. And what is that? Well, it says two things. You can't be a senator and a uh, and a member of the judiciary at the same time. You can't be a senator and, the, and a member of the executive branch at the same time. You have to step down that's the inel- that's the incompatibility clause but the ineligibility clause adds further that if there's been an increase in the pay of somebody in, the, in an executive branch job or the judiciary that you can't during your term you were elected for. so for the rest of your six years as a senator you can't take that job. Congress had passed a big law raising the, the raise raising the retirement benefits for the Supreme Court. So the uh, that was partly to encourage these old men to retire. By the way, they'd increase their <laughs> retirement <laughs> benefits yeah. a whole lot, and FDR wanted to get rid of them. And so, uh, Hugo Black should not have been eligible to be on the Supreme Court until after his end of his term in January 1937. He couldn't just resign. No, that that so there's two parts to the clause. Ineligibility, he could resign, but if that judicial job or that executive branch job had Heather either been created while he was in office or had a raise while he was in office, the emoluments had been increased.
1: Oh, okay, Then you sorry.
0: have to finish your term or the length of your term, I and mean, if you resign before you can be in that job, before you take that job. The idea of the founding... Really?
1: Co- That's in the Constitution?
0: Article 1, Section 6, Clause 2, yes. Uh, and and so basically argument from the argument from the founding fathers was you didn't want to do what they did all the time in Parliament, which was to create a job for somebody to get their votes. So hold I'm, on, hold on, hold on. Okay.
1: It says civil office. Is the Supreme Court considered a civil office?
0: It's any it, so. it ends up being defined as any officership in the United States. It's any it's a judicial appointment or any officer branch in the executive branch.
1: I have to read it again real quick out loud just because um, no senator or representative shall during the time for which he was elected be appointed to any civil office under the authority of the United States, which shall have been created or the emoluments whereof shall have been increased during such time. And no person holding any office under the United States shall be a member of either house during his continuance in office. Funny that they put that in there because, you know, the real estate on that parchment is pretty uh, valuable. And that's a funny thing. There must've been a little bit of a problem. There was actually, they anticipated something.
0: The, there had been a whole history of the King bribing members of parliament by offering them special crown jobs. If they would vote a certain mm-hmm. way or to get a few votes in a close call, you would say, how would you like to be the postal inspector for Bristol? Ah,
1: yes. And, and
0: your job is once a month to make sure the mail's being delivered and we'll pay you <laughs> a thousand crowns a month or whatever the pay is, which is a crap ton of money.
1: But you see this stuff all the time. You see this stuff all the time. Like all the people who uh, dropped the ball on nine eleven got promoted. Like, I mean, you you don't want to go there, Eric, but I'm just telling you that w- that it is alive and well. Paying people off for their service while in elected office is definitely uh, part of the political culture of this country to this day. Sure it
0: is. But the one way the founding fathers tried to address in the Constitution is to say, we're not going to create yeah. this new special customs tax collector job right. in right. Richmond. And then while your senator also give you that job so that you, you know, right. get rich. It's one way to avoid well, there, it.
1: There were probably a limited number of jobs back then. We have this completely out of control bureaucracy that is totally unconstitutional. So that kind of thing would have been how you had to do it. Otherwise you'd have to kick somebody out, it'd be too obvious. But now it's just, there's just jillions of them. Okay, sorry. I'm not trying to get you sidetracked no, that's, there, Eric. We got to have a little back and forth.
0: There's so much to talk about, right? <laughs> Keep so, going. So the point is that there's this part of the Constitution that says, if you're a senator, you can't go become a Supreme Court justice if the Supreme Court justices have gotten a raise or gotten an increase in their retirement benefits. Everybody kind of agreed that's what Emelman's meant. And so what happens with Hugo ba- Hugo Black? Well, FDR points him into the Supreme Court. He gets before the Senate. He has his friend from the NAACP talk about how he's no longer that much of a, of a racist. He's actually a really nice guy. He makes it through the process. He gets affirmed, and he gets sworn in. And a lawyer uh, who is a member of the Supreme Court sues to say, but hey, wait a minute. There was a raise in their benefits. He's not eligible. He can't serve till later. And that case goes to the Supreme Court. The name of the case is Ex Parte Levitt because it was Mr. Levitt who brought the lawsuit and the Supreme Court guess what's guess what they say about all this mess no standing mr levitt you can't complain ah, about right, this
1: right i just seen that coming <laughs> cuz a
0: member of the bar or a taxpayer or a citizen that's not enough harm for you to complain about a supreme court justice his appointment violating the constitution so now we have hugo black on the supreme court the first one of fdr's uh, appointees and by the way uh, just one more thing about Hugo Black. He ends up famously becoming a darn liberal judge,
1: <laughs> and
0: the, the, the <laughs> and the saying about him was that when he was a young man, he wore white robes and went around scaring black people, and as an older man, he wore black robes, went around scaring white people. Sounds right. Yep. So he ends up voting the way that the FDR wants to for expanded federal powers, and it's not long after that, uh, FDR starts. You know, he's in office for uh three full terms plus is elected for a fourth, he ends up having eight Supreme Court justices that he's able to appoint during his time in office. And there's only wow. nine there's only nine. Now one yeah. of them died along the way, but still he ends up having by the end of by the end of World War II, seven out of the nine Supreme Court justices are FDR appointees. So there's this total All transition right. in the court.
1: Wow, that's amazing because it was Harding and Coolidge, my faves, and then I guess that was it.
0: Yeah, so uh let me give a couple more examples of some of these cases that happen as as we go through like the next few years okay. with this. Now we have FDR's court. They've survived the court packing plan because they switched and started approving FDR's stuff, and now he starts appointing more people that agree with him. The next big case that I can't think is kind of famous and was worth talking about is Gray versus Powell in nineteen forty one, right before Pearl Harbor is bombed. Uh the question was one of these laws called the Bituminous Coal Act set minimum costs or the prices that you, it basically was a price fixing law for coal and it was to shore up the economy to make sure that, that prices would be high enough on coal that people would bother to mine coal so it's it it's price controls and well i think modern economists can definitely explain why price controls don't necessarily hurt product i mean help production very much in fact they'll probably hurt production because if you have price controls you don't have the yeah, competition of Anymore, and you only have certain people willing to work for those price controls, and there's all kinds of economic um, problems. But in the 1930s and 40s, this was one of FDR's solutions to the Great Depression: was to put price controls on coal. And the specific issue in the case was to be exempt from the price controls and to pay market prices if you were both the producer of the coal and the consumer of the coal. So if you were a railroad company and you mined your own coal, yeah, you could mm-hmm. just mine it yourself, and not have to pay the prices. Seaboard Air Airline. Air, Air it was not an airline. It was the coal, the, the the railroad called Seaboard Air. Seaboard <laughs> Air was the railroad okay. line. They owned coal mines in West Virginia and Virginia, and they hired contract companies to do the mining for them. And the agency came in and said, because you're letting contract companies do the mining, then you have to pay the full price under the coal under the Bituminous Coal Act. And the, and the railroad says, wait a minute, we own the land. Yeah, but you don't own the companies doing the mining, so now you're going to have to pay the full price. So they would have owed a bunch of money back for the higher prices they should have had to pay over the last few years. And this case goes all the way to the Supreme Court. And the argument from the, the railroad is that this agency just made this up and is making up this new rule and has decided that we don't count as owners of these companies uh, they've interpreted it to that there were independent contractors and even though we own the land that still doesn't count That's all, all those facts are wrong. Their factual findings are just wrong and the Supreme Court ends up ruling with the government agency on the grounds that the Supreme Court will a court will not substitute its judgment for that of an agency if the agency follows minimum due process We are not going to actually look into hmm. the facts of that minimum due process
1: Wow now that's really abdicating the whole balance of powers thing. Because administrative law is totally unconstitutional to start out with.
0: Absolutely. And then and this to, is,
1: yeah,
0: this is one to the- make
1: it not even subject to the normal rigor of constitutional scrutiny is just uh yeah, obviously they want to transfer power to the executive branch.
0: Yeah. So the so the technical holding is if if what you're complaining about is unconstitutional, we'll still listen to why it's unconstitutional. But if the act itself that created the agency and what it regulates is constitutional, then we're not going to look into the facts or the findings of the administrative agency as all, at all. We're just going to check to see whether they procedurally followed due process. And there's an expression, I can't remember who, who the author was, but it's, I think he was a Catholic, and he said something along the lines of, in hell you always get full due process, that every rule is followed strictly, all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. There's just no substantive justice in hell. They fall just because they follow the procedures doesn't mean you actually get a fair nice. hearing. You just in hell you always get full due process. That's Gray versus Powell. All the court's going to do is look to see whether you got the minimum due process. Did you get a notice and an opportunity to be heard? And we don't care whether they whether everything that they found it makes no sense.
1: Who is that Rothschild guy who was head of the like consumer protection agency or something under Trump? An older guy, uh, a guy. There was some weird thing where they tried to go through that ruling under Trump, and they said he was oh, shite. What was that guy's name? First of all,
0: I can't remember.
1: You know who I'm talking about, though. That he was an older guy who was head of Rothschild Inc. in New York, and he became the Commerce Secretary under. Trump and first of all, I'm going to look at that. Uh, Wilbur Ross. Okay. Okay. Yep. So remember there was a famous like a uh, dispute um, where it said, um, that it was it a citizenship thing. It was a census question. It said a divided Supreme Court ruled that the Commerce Department's decision to add a citizen question to 2020 violated federal law. And I remember thinking that. They that that ruling was wrong because it was substantive and not that normally that kind of thing goes under that scrutiny of process not substance because they have carte blanche when it comes to substance was my understanding that even if he was lying as an excuse to make that rule, the Supreme court never dings them on that. Any, any plausible, any, any sentence that has a a subject and a verb isn't a good enough excuse for these guys to make their fiat's.
0: Yeah, I, 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 now I remember the case you're talking about, and I don't remember the exact details. It'll be something we, I'd be glad to talk about later on because I know I've read the case before. But es- essentially, historically, if, a, if an agency issues a rule and says, here's how we're going to do something, courts give great deference to that. But in that right. case, the, uh, the I guess it was the Department of Commerce that does the census, yeah. and the Department mm-hmm. of Commerce wanted to add a question that said, are you a citizen or not? And that's yeah. what Trump wanted to collect data on. And the Supreme Court, and the courts basically threw that out, and the Supreme Court affirmed it on the grounds that they hadn't actually gone through the notice and rulemaking process properly, I think is what happened.
1: Oh, okay. If
0: I remember right. But that I
1: thought what they had said, and I'm not I know you don't know that, that thing, but I thought what they had said was, we don't like his reason for putting that rule on. And I remember thinking, I learned in law school that they are not they do not question the reasons and the only reason i bring that up is that it these are like principles that has that have implications to this day and you can see that they have this unfettered power and and it was only that exception to that total power that made me realize how alive and well it is
0: yeah i Let's talk about that case later cuz I'm trying to remember I okay. think actually it was it wasn't that they, did, they you didn't they didn't like the, it right? yeah. it wasn't that they didn't like the reasons they didn't give a reason and under the technical rules for gross and comment, rule you, have, it, to you have to give any reason you have to give a yeah,
1: reason some reason yeah okay and they, i think that's, and
0: they said technically that that didn't count as a reason or whatever okay uh, okay
1: okay i think okay, that's how okay, they yeah. i just it. felt that yeah. it just emphasized how low the bar is for these guys to have dictatorial power and it sounds like this is the case that that came from
0: yeah. Yeah. That, that's so Grave versus how is kind of the first case that says that if if Congress passes a law that says agencies get to do something, the, the courts will not overturn what those agencies do unless there's a it clearly unconstitutional or it violates the procedural due process. And by the way, I found the quote. It's Professor Grant Gilmore, who uh, I think taught at Yale uh, back in the 70s, law reflects but in no sense determines the moral worth of a society. The better the the society, the less law there will be. In heaven, there will be no law, and the lion will lie down with the lamb. The worse the society, the more law there will be. In hell, there will be nothing but law, and due process will be meticulously observed.
1: Uh, That is brilliant, because I've noticed that, too. I always say, like, you don't need zoning laws in rich neighborhoods like they're not cutting down 80 year old oak trees <laughs> you know? they don't have to they like them it's and i'm wow. not saying you need zoning laws anywhere i'm just saying like when when people in poor socialist countries they've got all these laws I'm like we're our play our country isn't cleaner because we have more laws our country is cleaner because we're richer like that's that's how it works it's it is the substance is much more important than the than the than the rules
0: And, and yeah, that's, so if you, if, if people are generally good and you have a a court system that has a culture of always being fair, you're not going to see a lot of good cases where they violated due process. And if agencies, to the extent we need federal agencies to do something, they generally do a good job. You're not going to see a lot of people complaining. They didn't give me they violated my due process. Instead, what you see all the time is cases where people get screwed. It wasn't fair that somebody tried to cut a corner. And you hear cases about violations of due process all the time. And so, yeah, same thing uh, in, you know, the better society, the less you have to fight over the rules and more you can just talk about the substance. OK, I've got three more cases to talk about. One of them we've talked about before, but they kind of go in order here. And I think it's important. And the other two are related. So do we have time for three more cases?
1: Yeah, no, I, I carve out extra time for you, Eric, because I <laughs> it's, I love to be educated.
0: Uh, thank you. This is awesome. I'm having fun. This is this. Is I hope stuff. you have time. Yeah.
1: I mean, you're yeah. the one whose time is so valuable.
0: I'm I'm doing great. So really okay. quickly, Fantastic. the next case that happened. So 1941 was that Gray versus Powell case. Administrative agencies can do whatever they want as long as they follow due process. The next year was the Wheatfield case, Wickard versus Filburn. You and I have talked about that before. So I'll just discuss this briefly. Under Article One Section 8, Congress only has the power to issue laws in certain areas, and one of them is to regulate interstate commerce. If they want to tell somebody inside of a state what they can do if that person is not crossing state lines, the old rule was that's not something Congress could regulate, that it has to be co- some kind of commerce that goes outside right. of the state.
1: Right.
0: In this case, the one of the other FDR programs was to set up price controls for cop crops, and one of the things they they regulated was how much you could be paid for your wheat and how much wheat you could be you could plant. You had to ask for permission to grow a certain amount of wheat. Mister, yeah, the wheat field case. Yeah, the so wheat field case. Yep. Uh-huh. And so uh, the farmer in this case planted his limit of thirteen acres of wheat. That's what the government had permitted him to do. But he also grew another nine acres for his own use to feed his own cows and to make his own bread. That he wouldn't sell any of it. He said, "This is for my own personal use." And ultimately, the Supreme Court said, we can regulate, you violated the law, and this is something Congress can regulate because that nine acres is wheat (laughs) that you otherwise would have had to buy in interstate commerce if you wanted to feed your family or feed your cows. And therefore, by growing your own wheat for your own use, you still affected interstate commerce.
1: That's awful.
0: So, yeah, that's 1941, right? I'm sorry, 1942. That
1: violates like the essence of, of the human being. You know, yeah. our relationship with the earth, God's gifts to us, like, it's like, you probably aren't going to like this, but I mean, God gave man cannabis and nobody should say you can't grow it in your backyard. I mean, that's just.
0: And I it bothers the hell out of me that the whole idea of interstate commerce goes, mean, it means all commerce the, somehow. It,
1: and that's not even commerce. That's yeah, just the yeah. absence of commerce.
0: That's, a, that's a, actually another <laughs> good, know. another good point. It's not only absence of commerce, but if you look on like the, like I'm in Tennessee and our state seal says on it, industry, agriculture, commerce. Those are three different things. At, commerce is the trading oh, of goods. Agriculture right. is the growing of goods. That's a yes. whole different thing as well. Industry
1: is the manufacturer of goods. Right. Interesting. So the,
0: in the old days, the, what the founding fathers was talking about was if I'm going to take my wagon or my boat over to the next state that we can regulate, we can make sure that New York doesn't charge you a fee if you're coming from New Jersey, et cetera. So one little piece of background history here, uh, When Hugo Black was nominated to the Supreme Court, it was 1937. He was the first one nominated uh, and approved that came from FDR. Before this uh, Wheatfield case in 1942, there were Justice Reed, Justice Frankfurter, Justice Douglas, Justice Murphy, Justice Stone, Justice Burns, Justice Jackson, all appointed by FDR, that many new members. So did
1: the old guys die sick retire like that seems like an unusual number There was a,
0: there this is well far enough 10 years. far enough into FDR's time that the old the, the, the guys who were appointed in the 20s and 30s were retiring and also and passing away now Justice Stone actually had been an appointee by one of the Republican presidents he he gets moved up to being uh the chief justice uh but the other so but there's still six new fdr appointees by 1942 wow. so by the by the time of the wheatfield cases it's six out of it's six out of nine are our fdr appointees which leads us to the last the last <laughs> case that i want to yeah. talk about it comes in it's two it's a two-chapter case do you remember from law school the chennery doctrine Does i that do not bell? nope okay so this is another part of administrative law and as as administrative law starts to develop because all these new agencies really grew during the Great Depression under FDR in this it's the Securities and Exchange Commission versus the Chenery Corporation and what the Chenerys did was actually kind of underhanded they were uh it was elect it was a, a state run electrical company that had private ownership and there were some kind of allegations that there was that they had committed some fraud And they probably had committed some fraud. The problem was the fraud that they committed in selling the stock of the state-run corporation didn't violate any of the rules that the the Securities and Exchange Commission had created by the time that they committed the fraud. So in the first version of the case that came out in 1943 in the Middle World War II, so the next year after the Wheatfield case, the Supreme Court holds Rule 1 of the Chenery Doctrine that an administrative agency cannot defend its action in court based on a new rationale that it had not offered below, that it has to tell the, the subject of the administrative law investigation, what rule they violated, what the rule is, and then that's the rule we're going to defend it on.
1: So is that like an ex post facto thing?
0: It's very similar to the, it's basically an ex post facto rule that
1: which means you can't be held to the standard of a rule that wasn't in place when you committed your act.
0: Yes, and not only that... Which makes sense. Not not only ex post facto, but they actually... You know, further, you can't make up a new rule when you get to court to argue a new reason for defending the agency action.
1: Well, but... So is the rationale for every action written in stone the minute it's... So unlike a prescription, like if you get a prescription for Wellbutrin. They can tell you to use it to quit smoking, even though it's only approved for depression. Not true for regulatory law.
0: Um, let let, let me let, let me just read exactly what the holding is, and then let so the Let's language is that an an agency may not defend an administrative decision on new grounds that were not set forth in the agency's original decision. So, if the reason okay. why. I'm determining that your house needs to be destroyed because mm-hmm. it's uh, it's condemned because you have too much asbestos, and then you take me to court and you're able to prove that your asbestos levels were too yes. low, I can't mm-hmm. then turn around and tell the court, well, in reality, we should also tear her house down because she had a bad attitude or because yeah. there were termites <laughs> yeah. or because uh, she didn't vote the right way or whatever other reason right. I want to use. I have to-
1: So it's, it's almost like the Federalist Papers would be binding on the Constitution.
0: Sure. Yeah. Or there...
1: maybe maybe it's actually in the original rule. And you have to write your rationale. But I, I totally get that. And it should be that way. Should it not?
0: It should be, except for the next part of the decision.
1: Oh, snap.
0: So Chenery 2. OK. All right. So what ends up happening oh, now?
1: It's coming back to me. Yep. I remember this. part. So
0: the Supreme Court in Chenery 1 issues what most people consider to be a pretty important rule that that should be followed That an agency can't defend its decision in court on a new reason. It has to tell you as an administrative agency why we're making the decision that we're making. And it has to be based on the rules that were in place when we were doing our enforcement. The Supreme Court sends it back to the Securities and Exchange Commission to redo it and follow the rules and their rationale. This time during a hearing, while they're discussing all this, they come up with a rule that says, okay, they basically have like they create the common law of administrative law. And what we're effectively talking about is if an ALJ, a non-judge, a, a, a federal administrative law judge that works for an agency, not a Article Three real federal judge, but if an administrative law judge is doing an investigation and holding a hearing, that administrative law judge can create new rules that are not in the regulations and not in the statute as long as it's consistent with the purposes of the administrative agency. It's called... Uh, adjudicative rulemaking, and they create this concept that agencies can make up new rules while they're investigating you based on the facts of this case. That's bad. Isn't that bad?
1: It's ruined everything.
0: And so the Supreme... Yeah,
1: and that just opens the door to vindictiveness.
0: So agencies can create new rules during the administrative process and apply those rules retroactively.
1: So even if the original rule is just a power grab, they don't even have to worry about having to defend that. They can just think of stuff later.
0: Yeah, I, yeah. you know,
1: it's a moral hazard too that what you don't the- have to have a well formulated rationale for your rulemaking. You can have a sinister, um, you know, reason to do it that you're not expressing, and just pile a bunch of crap on there, which is what I felt like Wilbur Ross. You know, they were accusing Wilbur Ross of doing.
0: Yeah. So the, I, I guess the the pushback on that a little bit would be according to the Supreme Court, what you. Have to do is during the administrative investigation. You have to use that administrative determination to develop what the rule is and announce the rule during the process. the The complaint would be from people who are subject to this rulemaking is well, how do I know what rule I'm defending myself against until you're t- you're going to announce this new rule at the end of the hearing and I have to go to court to have that overcome and they're going to give deference to that new rule. That's essentially what's going on but the administrative agency at least has to go through the process of in this hearing explain why they're coming up with this new rule and but then i agree with you yes it's an absolute power grab this is one of my favorite quotes that'll get close to wrapping this up justice jackson was the supreme court justice who basically threw a red flag on this he was the dissenter the only dissenter in chenry too and he says this i give up now I realize fully what Mark Twain meant when he said, The more you explain it, the more I don't understand it.
1: <laughs> exactly. That encapsulates basically everything we've talked about today. A
0: whole lot the of whole, administ-
1: everything the Supreme Court was doing. The Law and the Supreme
0: Court just goes off on its own. And we've covered basically from we had one old case from the 1920s about no standing, and everything else we've talked about today was 1937 to 1947.
1: Yeah, FDR. It makes me, you know, people... So I think there's this... M- m- there are people as disgruntled with the left as people are on the right, like people who are, you know, ideological liberals who are not happy with, uh, you know, hypocrisy and corruption and war-making and stuff, just like people on the right are disgusted with rhinos. And those people on the left... They just love FDR. And I try so hard to see the good and I cannot. Like it's just it, he oversaw a complete and utter transformation of this country from, uh, you know, a confederation of constitutional uh, free little sovereign states. I guess I guess, you know, Lincoln started it, but I just I feel like the the difference that made under FDR is it's a different country.
0: Yeah, I, I would say that a little bit with Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson, the Progressive Era in the between 1900 and 1920, that those ideas really got their their foothold. Um, then they got pushed back for a while with the Republicans in between, and then. But the Great Depression just opened the door. And you, would, your grandmother probably said the same thing my grandmother said. At least he kept the country from going communist. That that was what FDR did by with all the stuff. I
1: love you and I love your family and I I love your, you know, taking your mom to church and everything. But they when my aunt said they uh she was active in the government back then, like just local government and stuff, and they were talking about social security, and they they said, Well, what what about the old people? And she stood up, arm raised, and said, Let them die. <laughs> That's because fantastic. they had That's voted for Wilson, they had voted for FDR, and she was like, "They, I had no sympathy for them."
0: That's fantastic. So, I yes. Yeah, my, my great hardcore. grandmother had two sisters who, in 1946, when FD, 1945, when FDR died, one was a diehard Democrat, the other one was a diehard Republican, and the Democrat called up her sister and said, "I'm, I'm so sad. I'm so upset. The president is dead." And the Republican one said, "It's about time to serve the son of a bitch right." They did right. not speak again. And in the 1980s, we would go. Wow. Visit, we would go visit Aunt Zach and Aunt wow. Doris on the same day, but they didn't speak to each other.
1: Wow. That sounds like a <laughs> kind of a, a, Vax level schism. We lived a but couple they, miles
0: apart in Maryland. That,
1: oh, that's really too bad. But <laughs> but we had also another thing that my Aunt Margaret wanted, I think, although she wasn't a warmonger. So I can't I can't square this circle, but she wanted the allies to march to Moscow. She was like, just clean it all up right now. She, had, if she'd worked for George
0: Patton, they'd have been. That's what Patton wanted to do too.
1: Friend, oh Patton! Oh my gosh, uh, there's a there's a book called Target Patton. Apparently, there's something to suggest that uh, he was murdered. He wouldn't shut he his knew. mouth,
0: so they ran him over yeah. the jeep before he started World War III. Even though he would have been right.
1: Yeah, well, you think he was starting World War II? I think he was just foiling Eisenhower's dreams. But I actually, right now, for a short time, live in the town where Patton was born. There's a big statue of Patton in like in the uh, in the park near me. But anyway.
0: Be, I would, just
1: to myself, but I'm moving, so I don't care.
0: He went to the same college that I did for a year. Oh, really? I went to the Virginia Military Institute. He did a year at the VMI, went through the rat line the freshman year of hazing, and then got accepted to West Point and did it all over again at West Point. Uh, he went to two years of freshman hazing at a military academy.
1: Well, if I had to have a military hero, I think it would it'd be him just because somehow I feel like martyrs are more authentically heroic than the ones who survive. But uh, anyway... Those are all topics for another time. I should take better notes of the 15 things that we need to do shows about by the end of each show. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a, you know, like an option tree, like just, it's like descendants forever. We could have a this show every day. So, so what, show, that was fantastic. Thank you so much, Eric. You really put so much effort into it and it's so clear and I so appreciate it. So what's next?
0: So there's, there's two things that happen over the next 30 years after World War II that I think are important. There's the rise of individual rights, which are kind of worth discuss, discussing. The Warren Court, uh, uh, Governor Warren was the governor of California. He was the last true politician to become a Supreme Court justice, and he became chief justice. And remember all those famous cases you and I learned in law school, the Brady Law, the Gideon Rule, the um, Miranda Law. A lot of those came under him. That's worth an interesting conversation. And is it a good idea to expand the Constitution to create more individual rights? Who does that hurt if they're not expressly in there or they're read to me more broadly than what's in the Bill of Rights? Interesting. Or, or are we simply enforcing rights? that are always there. We just never followed them. That's an interesting, interesting. conversation over the next 30 years. But then the other conversation is basically through uh, the rest of the of the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, and then even to modern time, uh, what we've really seen is the court continued to expand the administrative rules that that ad- administrative agencies are just given more and more leeway. There's the Chevron Doctrine we can talk about, which is even as powerful as the Gray case we talked about earlier. But then kind of bring it full circle and talk about the Supreme Court now, the EPA versus West Virginia case, I think is a big landmark uh big right hand turn the supreme court has quit following this path of cases since the 1930s and has started to put the flaps down and the brakes on
1: that's why they're after clarence thomas so hard because he could lead that charge and i think he's willing to do it
0: it was a big political push that's changed the supreme court in the 1930s we finally have a supreme court that wants to go the other way you think there's gonna be a political push to stop him Uh-huh. i
1: worry for his life but anyway yeah. so uh Please also I just before we went to air here uh Someone texted me that they were listening to you and I guess it was Clint, I guess, um, on your own podcast. So I think some of my listeners have enjoyed the kind of crossover to the other stuff you do. So not only just remind people about your firm, but also your other podcasts.
0: Yeah. So Clint Powell and I do two podcasts. One we do on Mondays with our friend Matthew Durham. It's called Of, By, and For the People. They're both under the label Of, Buy and For the People. The first one we do on Mondays is we look at the headlines of the day and we try to ensure that we're addressing the best arguments of both sides. We might have our offer our own opinions, but we want to hit those news items, get some of the facts out there. Part of what I wanted to address is people are so polarized these days and politically divided that you might not even understand why the other side believes something different than you do because you, they've heard totally different facts. So let's talk about some of those things and we put it in the context of the constitution and American history whenever we can. The second podcast is we try to do it on every Tuesday morning. Clint and I are working our way through the Constitution line by line. And wow. we've done the first 10 uh, amendments to the Bill of Rights. So the bill We've done the Bill of Rights, and we worked our way through Article 1 covering the legislature, and we're up to Article 1, Section 7 so far. So we've got a ways to go, but we've probably got about 60 episodes in the tank.
1: Wow, that's awesome. And actually, I see on the podcast app that my producer made your little uh logo
0: oh awesome. yeah i yep, don't know if right. you knew that yeah, but, but yeah, yeah he
1: contributed to your podcast uh he donated to your good work yeah that, so thank you again for doing, doing that yeah
0: thank you for doing that He's, <laughs> i just think fantastic. it's fun yeah.
1: that, that uh we you know we're uh like support each other i think that's nice yeah so okay that's fantastic thank you eric i you're absolutely one of my most popular episodes people look forward to it so i really appreciate that you give us your time and effort and i cannot wait for the next one it's really the highlight of hopefully the month so we'll try to do that again soon and this is Monica prez and thank you everyone for listening for to deep dives with monic prez thank you so much eric see you soon